Tonight, I feel bad about the GM factory in Ontario closing, but why did their union go to court to block Alberta oil sands pipelines? It's November 27, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government We've all heard the news about General Motors and their plan to shut down its Oshawa, Ontario factory next year, laying off up to 2,800 people. That's a tough blow. Although it's simply the latest, there used to be 40,000 people building cars in Oshawa. But as the president of Magna, the auto parts company, put it this spring, it just doesn't make sense to build cars in Canada. Canada's the highest cost location in North America to build cars. Add in Justin Trudeau's looming carbon tax and Donald Trump's tax cuts. Just doesn't make sense. But don't bother Justin Trudeau with any of that boring real world stuff. He's got much more exciting things to do. He's about to fly to Argentina, people. There's gonna be some great photo ops down there. He's already tweeting about it, guys. This week, I'll travel to Argentina for the 2018 G20 Summit to work with leaders from around the world to keep building stronger economies that work for everyone. Fight climate change, promote gender equality, and discuss the future of work. Got it, so our boy's still prattling on about global warming and gender equality while GM is shutting down factories. Um, haven't they heard of Trudeau's inspirational speech about the future of work? I mean, come on, get with it, guys. Back in real life, 12 months into the future, 2,800 families in Oshawa will be looking for work. That's the future of work. It's tough. I'm obviously sympathetic to these 2,800 families, and I'm obviously skeptical of GM like Bombardier. They were happy to take massive cash bailouts from Canadian taxpayers and then shut down factories here to move to cheaper jurisdictions. I don't blame... Uh, sorry, I do blame Justin Trudeau and Kathleen Wynne for making Canada so uncompetitive in the first place. But at the end of the day, GM took the cash. I suppose maybe you can't blame someone for taking billions of dollars of free money and running if it's technically legal. But you have to admit it's gross, like Bombardier is gross. Now, Donald Trump wasn't happy because although 2,800 Canadians are being laid off, about 3,300 Americans will be laid off too, including in Ohio, a battleground state, where they make a compact car called the Chevy Cruze. I should point out that GM is shutting down that tiny car, and they're completely shutting down the Chevy Volt, GM's electric car. No one wants to buy them. People like SUVs and trucks. Now, there's a lot of BS when it comes to tiny cars, fuel-efficient cars, electric cars. Everybody knows they're supposed to like them, supposed to say they like them, but no one does. Here's Barack Obama six years ago. At GM's Hamtramck plant in Detroit, where I got to get inside a brand new Chevy Volt fresh off the line, even though Secret Service wouldn't let me drive it. But I like sitting in it. It was nice. I bet it drives real good. <laughs> and five years from now, when I'm not president anymore, I'll buy one and drive it myself. 
Yeah, no, he uh, didn't buy one. No one did, other than a few public sector showboats, showboats like Barack Obama himself was there. They're almost always spending government money on them. That's being shut down. Uh, Donald Trump has never been a big booster of green schemes. He's always mocked the global warming lobbyists, calling it a scam on Twitter. He just wants factories. And here's what he said yesterday about that Chevy Cruze factory closing. Well, we don't like it. Uh, I believe they'll be opening up something else. And uh, I was very tough. I spoke with her when I heard they were closing. And I said, you know, this country's done a lot for General Motors. You better get back in there soon. That's Ohio. And you better get back in there soon. So we have a lot of pressure on them. You have senators. You have a lot of other people, a lot of pressure. They say the uh, Chevy Cruze is not selling well. I say, well, then get somebody, get a car that is selling well and put it back in. So I think you're going to see something else happen there, but I'm not happy about it. Their car is not selling well, so they'll put something else. I have no doubt that in a not-too-distant future, they'll put something else. They better put something else in. Now, who knows what that will translate into in real life, but if I were the CEO of General Motors, I'd be more concerned about that comment by Donald Trump than this comment by Jerry Diaz, the president of the auto workers union here in Canada called Unifor. Uh, he was talking to workers, and according to this uh, report, he said he will, quote, use every tool possible to show GM it will not betray Canadians again. What does that mean? I don't quite know. I don't know what he can do. I mean, the fact is GM's factories have about a million cars a year in excess capacity. They're going to shut down the least profitable factories. And as we showed you yesterday, that means the Canadian ones. Here's a former CEO of Chrysler saying he wouldn't be surprised if other car makers shut down their most costly plants in Canada, too, including in Brampton. It sounds like you're saying that how we got here was through a lack of leadership and a lack of vision, either on the part of the unions or on the part of the government. I think it's uh, both. And uh, the government does not and never wanted to support the industry. You know, Brampton's next. You know, what's the government going to do there? I don't know what they're doing at Chrysler because I have been away for, for nine years now. But the bottom line is, what are they going to do for these people? Instead of worrying about what Mexico's pay rates are, why doesn't, why doesn't Canada focus on and the union focus on their current members? Because this is going to spread. Now, I don't quite understand his advice. And of course, Chrysler took a huge bailout 10 years ago, too. But I think his prediction is probably right. Frankly, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be some negotiation now. GM and Chrysler will see what concessions they can get over the next year to maybe get their expensive plants to become affordable. That's either concessions from the unions or concessions from the governments involved. I wouldn't doubt that Justin Trudeau would throw a few billion dollars to keep them going. And again, can you blame a for-profit company like GM or Chrysler from taking free money? It's like a hockey team getting a free stadium. It's immoral, sure, but you'd be dumb not to take the free cash. It's hard to get to the heart of things here, don't you think? It's hard even to get the accurate reports because the Trudeau slush fund media, the ones who are about to pocket their own bailout of $595 million in free money, they're so biased. I mean, look at these two stories. In the same newspaper, the Toronto Star, on the same day. Do you see that? They're both November 26th. 
Uh, Trudeau has been in office for three years. Doug Ford, just a few months. So look at the one where they're talking about Trudeau. That's on the left. So Ottawa is looking at all options as GM closes Oshawa plant. So it's framed with Trudeau as the helpful save here. But look at the one on the right. GM shows Doug Ford's Ontario isn't so open for business. <laughs> yeah, Doug Ford is clearly driving out the factory. He's been premier for a few months. Look, they're already fleeing. Look, you can't trust the media, can you? But I want to add one more layer to things today. We got the, you know, the, I, I, I would agree with Jerry Diaz that the big three automakers are amoral. And I agree that politicians are to blame for tax policy and other high costs. But let's talk about something that no one has really delved into yet, and that is Jerry Diaz and Unifor the Union itself. I'm gonna separate it, the union and their bosses from the 2,800 families who are soon out of work. I wanna talk about the union leadership itself. Because Jerry Diaz is angry. He's making weird and vague threats about GM. He's making demands. Obviously, he'll take handouts of Trudeau, I'll give him. And maybe that's a job to do that. It's just a fact that Canadian factories are more expensive than American or Mexican factories, and Trump and Trudeau are both making that gap bigger, and Jerry Diaz had a seat at the table in an after renegotiations, and I don't think he helped much. But could you imagine if that factory in Oshawa and that Chrysler factory we heard about in Brampton had been the target of a 10-year propaganda campaign to shut them down with foreign money? Ten years of demonizing these factories, of pointing out their carbon footprint, how much pollution they cause. Ten years of publicizing every error or accident or misstep, anything going wrong at the factory, every time there was a car accident on the street. And if it was a GM brand, brand of vehicle made in Oshawa, I know it sounds crazy, but imagine if someone were paid by a foreign lobby group to do nothing but track car accidents in Canada. And whenever a car from that Oshawa factory had an accident, and I know this sounds crazy, imagine if there were a press release attacking that GM factory in Oshawa. Never GM factories in other countries, never, let's say, Toyota. Let's say it was a Toyota-financed propaganda effort that just hated that factory, just Oshawa. Imagine if there were protests outside the Oshawa plant, paid protesters. Imagine if there were lawsuits against that factory alleging pollution or, I don't know, even suing that anyone who would still build a fossil fuel car in 2018 was killing our planet, whatever. I know that's unthinkable. I know that's too crazy. But of course, that is exactly what has been done to Alberta's oil industry for, for a decade or more. Defamation, smearing, protests, lawsuits, lies, hugely funded, well-organized. Imagine the rage and the sorrow and the feeling of betrayal of those 2,800 families in Oshawa if it were in part because of a well-financed 10-year smear campaign. Well, now multiply that rage by 40, because there are at least 100,000 oil and gas families still unemployed in Alberta. The Trans Mountain Pipeline alone would have employed triple the number of families laid off in Oshawa. The Energy East Pipeline, as you know, the construction alone was a $15.7 billion jobs project. No bailout needed. Where was the sympathy then? Where was the national wailing? There was none. There was jubilation and celebration from the far left, the eco-left, and quiet smirks from the liberals. Here's Gerald Butts condemning the fossil fuel economy 
for pipelines. Now he's Trudeau's right-hand man. Imagine if such a man were to have said this exact same thing, but instead about pipelines, about car factories. Truth be told, we don't think there ought to be a carbon-based energy industry by the middle of this century. That's our policy in Canada, and it's our policy all over the world. You can choose to fight this fight on locking us into a high-carbon economy for five decades. Um, and I think that's a very reasonable uh, perspective to take. In fact, it's one we do take. Uh, so we don't think that, we think that the oil sands have been expanded too rapidly uh, uh, without a serious plan for environmental remediation in the first place. So that's why we don't think it's up to us to decide whether there should be another, another route for a pipeline. Because um, the real alternative is not an alternative route, it's an alternative economy. So why is that okay when it's against oil and gas and pipeline families, but not auto families? But Unifor itself is the worst. Jerry Diaz's union itself is a job killer. Here's a press release two years ago by Unifor itself. Let me read it to you. Unifor is disappointed with the National Energy Board's short-sighted decision to support the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, one that poses risks for the economy, Canadian jobs, and food security. Oh, food security, eh? The Kinder Morgan Expansion Project is all risk and no gain for the public or our environment, said Joie Warnock, Unifor's Western director. Despite applying conditions for approval, in the absence of any realistic enforceable regulations, the NEB failed to consider the very serious risks a project of this magnitude has for residents and our economy. Oh, so even though it was approved as safe by experts, by neutral exports, by Trudeau's experts, Unifor campaigned against it. They helped destroy it. And here's Unifor now actually going to court to stop the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Let me show you another press release they put out it's a couple years back. The process was rigged from the start and they ignored important testimony from Canadians, said Joie Warnock, Unifor's Western Director. If Stephen Harper refuses to protect our coast, we have no choice but to fight him in court. Unifor went to court to stop a jobs project in Western Canada. Here's Unifor on the Keystone XL pipeline. Ready? Canadians don't benefit from pipelines that ship unrefined oil to other countries. Plain and simple, said Unifor National President Jerry Diaz, told uh, the union's BC Regional Council in Vancouver. Keystone XL, Northern Gateway, and the new Kinder Morgan pipeline all have one thing in common. They steal Canada's natural resource wealth and leave us with nothing to show for it. Unifor is calling on the federal government to enforce greenhouse gas emission targets by limiting the future expansion of bitumen production. Really, eh? When was the last time there was a carbon emissions analysis of an auto factory? When was the last time you had union bosses from Alberta flying out to Ontario to campaign against car factories or even sue them? When was the last time you had extremists in cabinet call for a gender analysis of a car factory like that clown Catherine McKenna does for pipelines? It's a sign of how broken Canada is that not just union bosses, but the media and the courts and political leaders and civil society, including charities, take it for granted that it's okay to attack oil and gas jobs and to campaign and sue and protest oil and gas jobs into submission, but God forbid 
a car company wants to move away from Trudeau's uncompetitive tax regime, well, it's a national crisis, and Trudeau had better come in with a bailout. Yeah, I'm sympathetic. I'm, I truly am sympathetic to those 2,800 families. I really am. But I'm 40 times more sympathetic to the 100,000 oil and gas families who were attacked by Trudeau and Butts and McKenna and Morneau. Oh yeah, and Jerry Diaz and his dues-paying Unifor union members. Yeah, I'll get around to laying a wreath for those dead jobs in Oshawa once I'm done going through the other 100,000 dead jobs that Unifor itself helped cause without a peep of protest, I should add, from those 2,800 union members whose dues were weaponized against the oil and gas industry. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, one of the quirky things about the Nazi regime in Germany some 70, 80 years ago uh, was that although they were quite murderous, um, they were against smoking. Hitler in particular, in fact, so much so that for years after the Second World War, Germans associated bans on smoking with Nazism. And so they were one of the last countries in Europe to bring in social justice laws against smoking. Hitler himself was a vegetarian extremist, um, an animal rights activist, anti-vivisectionist. He, he held himself uh, to um, moral, morally exquisite levels on that while he masterminded the murder of tens of millions. Well, I'm interested in a new book that follows on this subject. It's a book written by a rebel viewer from Grand Prairie. It's called The Green Swastika, Environmentalism in the Third Reich. And it's written by William Kay, who joins us now via Skype. William, it's a pleasure to see you again. We've spoken before about environmentalism. You're the editor of the website Environmentalism is Fascism, so you've been on this beat for a while. I think it would support- Over 20 years. Yeah, I, I, I know, and you're a meticulous researcher. Um, I think it would surprise a lot of people that the Nazis were environmentalists. I mean, people think of the Nazis as destroyers. <clears throat> Why did they love environmentalism so much? Well, first point, it certainly would not surprise academics. I have condensed over 24 books on my website, published by Princeton, published by Oxford, Cambridge, that really detail this. Uh, there's a few books even by the German government that were put out a few years ago to sort of manage this damaging information. But of course, they managed to give even more incriminating information by doing that. So whereas the public at large might not be aware of it, this is not really that debatable within the academic and within the historical community that much. Environmentalists dread this information getting out and they've gone to great lengths to sort of manage it and suppress it. But it is, this is not really even that controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, the question was why the Nazis were green? Yeah. Well, the key to understanding environmentalism, the key to understanding fascism is to understanding <clears throat> the dynamics of land use politics. And the core of the 
European fascist movement were the aristocrats. And what they dreaded more than anything else was a free market in land, like capitalism in land, where land would be just any other commodity circulating. These were people, the people that wanted to cartelize land. They were corporatists in general and in land in particular. And so they were the force behind land conservationism. And they were definitely the nucleus of the fascist movement. We should really view fascism of that era as aristocratic restoration. They were trying to regain the powers that they had lost after World War I and return to a, a far less than democratic system hmm. where these sort of old land barons dominated the political process. So the connection is really there. Uh, it's, the, it's, a, it's a violent opposition to free market in land. And it's also an effort by the, the old land barons to regain political control. I, that's a surprising answer. I was certain you were going to say two other things. I should say I haven't had the chance to read your book yet. This is just an introduction to it for me. But uh, the more we talk, I'm getting more interested by the minute. I would have thought you would have said, well, Hitler had uh, a hostility towards Christianity, towards the Pope, towards Judaism. But he had sort of a, a, a paganism, uh, an echo from a pre-Christian era. I thought you were going to say that perhaps he would rediscover that paganism through the environment. And I thought at core, well, Hitler was about control and authoritarianism. And if you control the environment, you control the means of production, you control everything. That would have been my theory. But you're saying it was, I suppose you're saying something similar when you're saying it was about control of land. It was, it was, there's a dynamic tension between the land barons and the entrepreneurs. That was the driving force behind the American Revolution, behind the French Revolution. But picking up on what you're saying about the religion of nature, <clears throat> officially, the Third Reich uh, remained uh, ostensibly a Christian country. They got they were referred to as positive Christianity. There were a lot of Lutheran ministers that supported them. They had very difficult relations with the Catholic Church, but nevertheless, uh, they got a lot of support from that as well. But the Nazi elite, the vanguard, you are correct. These were people who were anti-Christian, and they wanted to replace Christianity with a religion of nature. But this was more of a cultural epiphenomenal thing. I will say this in passing. There is an encyclopedia called the Encyclopedia of the Religion of Nature. And it came together by a bunch of academics who, for other reasons, realized that there was a really strong connection between fascism, Nazism, and this nature worshiping. I've read that encyclopedia, and I found over 400 paragraphs and entire entries that deal with the topic of the overlap between uh, Nazism and environmentalism and Nazism and fascism and this religion of nature. And that's one thing you'll find when you actually read a lot of the uh, original fascist and original Nazi writings, it's just full of this mother nature, mother earth, uh, nature in capital N stuff. But that was the, the Nazi vanguard. Uh, there were certain elements within the Nazi government who were really talking about, you know, replacing Christianity in Germany with a full-blown sort of paganistic, pantheistic religion. But they were shot down. They were they were proposing that during World War II. And a lot of the other ministers, cabinet ministers said, no, this is no time to be sort of, you know, monkeying around with that. Uh, but yeah, there was this strong element of that. And if you read their literature uh, of this sort of the Nazi vanguard, like Himmler and uh, Rosenberg and that, you'd think you're reading a Greenpeace track, you know? Yeah. 
We're talking with William Kay. He's the author of The Green Swastika, Environmentalism in the Third Reich. Uh, William, I'm, I'm still uh, processing what you said about the aristocracy and land, because in my mind, environmentalism and Marxism are the closest cousins. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but <coughs> Earth Day, for example, just happens to be Lenin's birthday if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and there's so many, you know, we, we've heard the phrase watermelon, green on the outside, red on the inside. It's the, it's the catch-all excuse for nationalizing things. I thought that, uh, you know, the, the Marxists would have been uh, the environmentalists. I suppose, I suppose in his own way, I mean, Hitler was a national socialist. Uh, can you compare the Nazi environmentalism with, uh, Marxism or Leninism? Uh, they, they really are not connected. They're actually polar opposites. In every fascist regime, the first thing they did was annihilate the far left. It's difficult for people who have come through the Cold War. They tend to view any effort towards some sort of highly statist authoritarian system as a movement towards socialism. You know, the, the, at the core of the Nazi party, you would find some of the, the wealthiest of the Germans. And you see this again with the environmental movement. Uh, if you look at the boards of directors of the, of the main funding agencies and what have you, these aren't the, you know, the working class rising up. This, these are elite groups that would be militantly opposed to any sort of sweeping expropriation of their assets. You have to think in terms of threes. People are trapped in a binary of a sort of right-left. There is multiple political ideologies out there. Corporatism, fascism, uh, it represents a section of, of very wealthy people, certainly not all of them. Uh, that want to see a highly centralized, highly regulated form of government, but they are actually militantly, violently opposed to the left. You know, time and again, when you have a fascist regime come into power, first thing they do is, is round up the left. The first concentration camp in Germany, Dachau, was for the left. They had, you know, 15, 20,000 people in prison within months, and those were all people who were members of leftist organizations. No, there's, there's multiple political tendencies out there. There's a very common mistake these days mm -hmm. to confuse the radical left with the environmental movement. The to make it even more confusing, a lot of fascist groups historically have masqueraded as leftist organizations, and they have a certain amount of leftist verbiage uh, in their titles and names and what have you, but these are quite distinct political traditions. You know, you're, you're making me think of some Soviet propaganda. There was always the factory and get production up. I mean, one thing I say to the modern left is at least the communists believed in the means of production. They believed in the factories. They just wanted the factories owned by the state. I, I suppose today's far left, they don't want the factories at all. They want to shut down the coal-fired power plant. They want to shut down the factories. Uh, I suppose that's one difference. But maybe, let me follow up on your theme. I, I, I see so many of the funders of the extreme environmental movements, and they are the Rockefeller Brothers Fund you know, perhaps the wealthiest family in history. And so many of these ultra-rich heirs, not, not the first-generation entrepreneurs who, like the Carnegies and, and whatnot, but two, three, four generations down, um, yeah, they are, they are extremists. If you look at most of the environmentalist money coming into Canada, it's not mums and dads chipping in 20 bucks, 50 bucks. It's foreign foundations 
chipping in six, seven, even eight figures. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the features that it shares with fascism. There's this myth that the fascism was this plebeian uprising. It, it never was. Uh, that information has been concealed. There is a priceless book called The Reich and the Royals, and it was published by Oxford in 2005. And it concludes with a list of all of the German princes who were members of the Nazi party. And that information was not revealed until 2005. And the list of princes who were members of the Nazi party was 290. And the author of that book was a detective with these groups that are still looking for the looted art of Europe. A third of all the artwork in France was stolen during World War II. Uh, that happened in other countries as well. They're still looking for this art. And some of the detectives involved in investigating that ultimately got access to some of the databases that some of the uh, army intelligence people had. And yeah, sure enough, the, the German aristocracy were almost to a person active members of fascist organizations and the Nazi party itself. Huh. And if you look at who was the, the center of the social nucleus of the German conservationist movement, the nature protection movement, it's the same list of people. Now, your book's 185 pages long, 400 footnotes. Would you call it a scholarly work or is it, is it more a work for interested lay people? You've referred to a lot of studies and a lot of research. What's your goal with this book? Well, I, I believe in exposing and opposing environmentalism. I'm someone who lives in Western Canada. The biggest political problem we have in Canada, in North America, and in many other places in the world is the suppression of economic activity by the environmental movement. And one of the mechanisms by which they curry favor amongst the masses is a sort of masquerading as somehow a voice of the people, what have you. No, this is a very elite group's of people that have no interest in seeing the hinterland develop whatsoever. And, you know, we would be really experiencing a tremendous economic boom in prosperity in North America, but for the activities of the international environmental movement. These are people who seriously do not care about the general prosperity, the general well-being of the broader masses. Let me ask you one last question about that and, and to move away from your book, which is historical, to talk about the world today. Uh, I think Donald Trump smashed a lot of the uh, uh, illusion of unanimity on global warming, carbon taxes, the United Nations, globalism. Um, I think he's being undermined uh, in terms of the bureaucracy of the United States, but he's at least made it acceptable to challenge uh, rhetorically what was going on. And I think on the ground, he's, you know, he's roaring back with a fossil fuel-based economy. Um, is the environmental movement around the world in retreat, whether it's China or the, uh, the removal of the massive solar and wind subsidies in Europe? It seems to me that the only place that, that this carbon tax global warming mania still takes hold is in the academy or the UN or I suppose Justin Trudeau's cabinet. It seems to me like the rest of the world doesn't actually live that creed. Am I wrong? Well, there, there's a number of points there. A lot of the you know, countries like India and China, they bought into it. They paid lip service to it because they, they knew that they would not have to actually do anything. The global warming campaign 
is centered around Europe. It is centered around Germany and France and Sweden and Denmark and countries that do not have any fossil fuels. And they are determined to transition the entire world away from fossil fuels and to be on the ground floor of the wind, solar, electric car industries for this new future world. Um, I'll say this about Trump, you know, I've never was so happy in my life at, at, regarding a political event as when he was elected. And I'm someone who came out of, you know, decades ago of being in the very far left. No greater slander out there than to accuse Trump and the Brexiteers uh, and the populist movement as being, <clears throat> as being fascist. And they are often tarred with that. And they're called right wing and what have you. We were well on our way down the road towards a uniparty system, which is basically a one party state we have with a media party, as you call it, which was basically turning into a, a ministry of propaganda with a deep state. These are all features of fascist regimes. And we were way down the road towards that being really locked down. The populist movement, the Trumpeteers, the Brexiteers, this is an anti-fascist movement. <laughs> and I think that's, that is a message that has to get out there. And a, a lot of them, because they were politically socialized during the Cold War, they tend to formulate what they're doing as though they're fighting against the left. The left is almost insignificant in this. Uh, you know, the Rideau Club, the Laurier Club, what have you, these are not leftists at all. These are corporatists, these are elitists, these are authoritarians who want to just sort of lock down this existing system and exclude uh, any sort of diversity of opinion. Well, very interesting. William uh, Kay is the author of The Green Swastika, Environmentalism in the Third Reich. I'm familiar uh, with William's work and his meticulously documented website, Environmentalism is fascism, which is fascinating reading for those who are interested in the subject. William, thanks for your time. You've convinced me to download the book, and I should have done that before our interview today. I just didn't have time to read it, but I wanted to get you on. It's like you gave me a primer uh, to, to get going on the book, because I am interested in the subject. and I'm interested in environmental extremism, and I am curious, as I think so many are, about how things went so wrong in uh, in, in Europe 70, 80 years ago. It'll be interesting to see the crossover. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. All right. Well, we'll put a link to the Amazon page for the Green Swastika underneath this video if you're interested in following up with the book as well. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue and interview yesterday about General Motors closing its Oshawa plant. Betty writes, at least now Jerry Diaz has some real work to do trying to salvage his union members' jobs instead of focusing on being the political resistance to conservatives. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he can wring more money out of Justin Trudeau. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's a tit for tat. He'll campaign for Trudeau. He'll get his journalists in the journalism side of his union to campaign for Trudeau. Uh, I mean, he just got a $595 million slush fund, so he's going to have to work extra hard for, I don't know, an extra billion for that plant, but he'll work at it. I'm sure Trudeau will say yes, why wouldn't he? <laughs> it's only money. Jerry writes, I'm usually a little depressed after listening to your comments and guests several years now. However, today I must confess and smile as I say I agree with Jerry Diaz. I think Fox should buy the CBC. Never thought I would ever agree with a union lefty. I don't understand where you're coming from from that. I, I just don't get it. But um, I think that 
I, I think we just need more independent journalists of the left and the right persuasion, I suppose, independent, neutral. You can't be an independent journalist if you're cashing a check from Trudeau, though. That's my point. I mean, whatever you say about Fox, they're not on the Trump payroll. They may seem like it because they support Trump, but they're not actually cashing a check from Trump. Every CBC journalist cashed a check from Trudeau, and now 595 million bucks worth of private journalism will cash a, cash a check from Trudeau, too. Norbert writes, Good reporting, Ezra. In the 70s, I was both a member of the UAW and the CAW. We had some great leadership with Bob White and then Buzz Hargrove. I was greatly distraught when CAW came under the umbrella of Unifor. The moniker Unifor does not inspire much confidence in the auto sector. Neither does the current president. Well, look, I just don't know enough about internal union politics. I know that there was a compilation of um, the uh, communications and electrical workers and the auto workers, and it was sort of a big amalgam. So I don't know which tribe Jerry Diaz comes from. Uh, there's a certain point where the size of your caucus, let's say, the size of your coalition, means if you're fighting for one, you're fighting against the other. I mean, that whole anti-oil sands crusade that Jerry Diaz has been on there are uniform workers in Fort McMurray in the oil patch. How can they countenance this? How can they lie back and take it? And frankly, how could auto workers support an anti-fossil fuel campaign? Even if it was in the near term aimed only at those Westerners in the oil patch, surely the dues-paying uniform members in Oshawa would know that if you build up hatred for oil and gas, it'll eventually seep into machines that use oil and gas, like cars. I don't know. Uh, but of course, we'll have 2,800 people with a lot of time on their hands to think about that for a while. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.